Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley's here, and we've got some questions for her. The lead starts right now. Brand new CNN polls breaking right now in the 2024 race. Has the Republican contest changed at all since Donald Trump swept Iowa and New Hampshire? And which GOP candidate fares better in a head-to-head matchup against President Biden? The results in just seconds. Plus, a scary warning ahead of the November election about artificial intelligence or AI. See how AI may have changed the outcome of another country's presidential race. And the mother of the Oxford, Michigan school shooter takes the stand in her own defense and shares what her son told her when she asked why he carried out the massacre. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start today with a number of huge stories in our 2024 lead. First, we're about to unveil a brand new CNN poll. It's just a snapshot of the presidential race as it stands right this minute. Who wins? in a matchup between President Biden and Donald Trump. And what happens when the Republican on the ballot is actually former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley? Plus, what are voters' biggest concerns right now in the midst of the Republican primaries? CNN's political director, David Chalian, is standing by with the brand new results. And Governor Haley herself is here to react to the new polls. Plus, I'll ask her about President Biden's new sanctions in the Middle East and how she says she would deal with Iran and its proxies after one of the groups killed three U.S. soldiers. We're going to ask her that and much more live on the lead in just a few minutes. Plus, President Biden also on the campaign trail today, courting voters in the key battleground state that helped deliver him the White House in 2020. Soon he'll meet with auto workers after winning a coveted union endorsement. We're covering all of this and more. Let's start with the release of the results of CNN's brand new poll of registered voters. Note, it's registered voters, not likely voters, not yet. Our political director, David Chalian, joins us. And the big headline here, David, Trump leads Biden, but it's just barely outside the margin of error. Just barely outside. This is going to be a close race, Jake. Take a look at our brand new numbers from this poll conducted by SSRS. Donald Trump at 49% among registered voters. Joe Biden at 45%. As you noted, just outside the margin of error. That is a narrow lead for Donald Trump. And I want you to see how stable this race has been since we last polled at the end of October, beginning of November. It's identical. Neither candidate has moved. That was a 49-45 race race at the time as well. Take a look at how Governor Haley matches up against Joe Biden in a hypothetical general election. There's no doubt she will like this poll number. 52% support among registered voters, uh, a majority there for Nikki Haley, to 39% for Joe Biden, a 13 percentage point lead for Nikki Haley. She's been touting this on the campaign trail, but She's got to get there. And the nomination race among Republicans is a lot trickier for her. This is saying uh, among Republican and Republican-leaning voters, who's your preference to win the presidential nomination in 2024? 70% of Republican and Republican leaders say Donald Trump. Only 19% say Nikki Haley, Jake. So if it ends up a Biden-Trump rematch, how do voters feel about that? Not great. Uh, Both of these men are deeply unpopular with the American people. 
Look at their favorable ratings compared to their unfavorable ratings. They are both significantly underwater, 39% favorable, 34% favorable uh, for Joe Biden. I also want you to look at what is motivating each gentleman's voters. This is a complete inverse of each other. Donald Trump is the factor in this race, Jake. Among Biden supporters, 68% say they're voting for Joe Biden because they're against Donald Trump. They're against his opponent, not for Joe Biden. It is the reverse for Trump voters. 60% of Trump supporters say they're voting for Trump to be for him. Only 40% say they're voting for him to be against Joe Biden. We also asked about their policy views. How do Americans see them? 61% of registered voters say they see Biden's policies and views as generally mainstream. Only 37% say that about Donald Trump. How about too extreme? Well, 38% say that about Joe Biden, that his policies and views are too extreme, but nearly two thirds, 63% of registered voters say that Donald Trump's policies are too extreme. And just look at Joe Biden standing overall in his approval rating, a key marker we look at with incumbent presidents. He's at 38% approval. And Jake, you can see over time, Joe Biden's been operating for the better part of the last year in a four point band. He really just hasn't moved that much. His numbers in approval overall are stubbornly low. So basically the poll shows that voters don't like the other guy, but they also have deep reservations about their own guy. Yeah, and we asked an open-ended question, Jake, uh, to partisans on each side about concerns that they may have about their preferred candidate. So among Republican and Republican-leaning voters, we said, what's your biggest concern about Trump as a presidential candidate? Well, the number one answer, 19% of them said they don't have any concerns. 15% said his tact, his mouth, what he says. 8% um, opposition attacks, and you see it goes down from there. For Joe Biden, it's much more clear what the concerns are that Democrats and Democratic leaders have. 46% of them say Joe Biden's age is the concern that they have about his candidacy. Only 9% say they have no concerns. And you see the economy, Israel and the Middle East, mental sharpness uh, below that, Jake. All right, David Chalian, thank you so much. Sure. Fascinating stuff. Let's talk right now about all of this with Republican presidential candidate uh, Nikki Haley. Governor Haley, you just heard from David Chalian. This new CNN poll shows in a head-to-head -head matchup between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. Uh, Trump uh, beats Biden uh, by only four points. It's just outside the margin of error, which is 3.8 points. In a matchup between Biden and you, uh, you clobber Biden. Biden, uh, you get 52 percent and um, Biden gets 39 percent. That would be a huge victory for the Republican Party. It would bring uh, the Senate and the House and governor's races and state legislative races with it, no doubt. Why doesn't this electability argument seem to mean more to Republican voters, do you think? Well, I mean, that's the argument we're trying to make. I think the reality is 70 percent of Americans don't want to see a Biden-Trump rematch. I mean, that's just a fact. The fact that we would have two 80-year-old candidates running for president is absurd. We've got a country in disarray and a world on fire. We need someone who can work eight years to get our country back on track, to heal our country, and to make sure we get our economy strong and that we prevent wars. And so that's the focus of of where we are. But if you look at the Quinnipiac poll yesterday, it showed that Trump loses to Biden by seven points. So if Republicans decide that they want to nominate Donald Trump, the same thing that happened in 2018, 2020, and 2022 will happen again in 2024. You can't keep doing the same thing and think you're going to get a different result. Donald Trump will lose the election for us. A new Monmouth poll out today shows you're 26 points behind Trump in South Carolina, a state where you were the governor, uh, your home state. 
That's the next major contest. How are you going to close that gap in three weeks? Uh, it seems to be that uh, re Republican voters are the ones that you have the biggest trouble with right now. We're going to do it the same way we did in New Hampshire. We moved 25 points in New Hampshire the last three weeks before the election. We're at that same point here. We're going to be anywhere and everywhere all over South Carolina. We've had thousands of people show up at our rallies. Our events have been strong. And people remember that we were the ones that moved 11% unemployment down to 4%, that we passed the toughest illegal immigration law in the country, that we passed voter ID and pension reform and tort reform, and we cut taxes, and we became the beast of the Southeast for all the manufacturing that we brought in. So we're just going to re remind them again what we did as governor and then show them that we can do that same thing as president. CNN is reporting today that two of Donald Trump's political action committees spent nearly $50 million on legal fees uh, and ended the year with only $5.1 million in the bank. Uh, what's your reaction to that? I mean, get ready to spend more campaign dollars on legal fees because those court cases have just started. He's got two in March and they go out for the rest of the year. It is unconscionable to me that a candidate would spend $50 million in legal fees. It explains why he's not doing many rallies. He doesn't have the money to do it. It explains why he doesn't want to get on a debate stage because he doesn't want to talk about why he's doing it. It explains why he had a temper tantrum, um, you know, the election night of New Hampshire is because he wants me out of the race and he wants to be the presumptive nominee so that all of that cash starts going to him and he doesn't have to spend anymore. But that's a reality of a real big problem for Republicans going forward. This is not personal for me. I don't have issues with Donald Trump. I voted with him, voted for him twice. I was proud to serve America and his administration. This is about the fact that we have a country to save. And we've got to focus on the fact that we've got an economy that is still out of control and a lot of wasteful spending by Republicans and Democrats. We only have 31% of eighth graders in our country proficient in reading. We have an open border that is unsafe for everyone. We are lacking law and order in our cities and we've got wars around the world and we need to start focusing on preventing wars instead of getting involved in wars. So we've got some serious work to do. In your speech after the New Hampshire primary, you said the first party to retire their 80-year-old candidate will be the party that wins. Yesterday, you tweeted this image of Biden and Trump. You called them uh, grumpy old men. Are you worried at all uh, about turning off older voters? I'm not because they get it. This is not about being disrespectful. This is about the fact that we need to have people. This is Congress, too. We need to have people at the top of their game. This is, they're, they're, these are issues on national security. These are issues on the future of our economy. We can't have it. We've already seen Trump have some confused moments. He did it again yesterday. We're seeing Biden. He's slowed down a lot in the past couple of years. This is about the fact that we have to think about our families. And to have two guys in their 80s, they are automatically going to be in mental decline. That's just a fact. Let's get this right. I think older people see it too. They know that we need a new generational leader. They know that we need to start focusing on the issues at hand and stop all the chaos and stop all the division and stop these investigations that are happening with both Biden and Trump and start focusing on what we're going to do to help the American people. Today, South Carolina Republicans supporting Trump held a news conference criticizing you while praising Trump. Uh, here's a little bit of what they had to say. Take a listen. In Nikki's case, her passengers in her compartment are the richest and most powerful people in this world. They benefit from open borders. I read her autobiography, but that section about Nikki being the governor, that should have been sold on the 
fiction shelves. Nikki Haley is not the right candidate to be president. Nikki is always about Nikki. So I don't know uh, if you could see that where you were. That was State Treasurer Curtis Loftus and um, State Representative Bill Taylor. It was a big field of middle-aged to older uh, white men criticizing you. Um, what was your response to any of that? No, it cracks me up because, first of all, there's no surprise that the governor of South Carolina is not supporting me. He's the one I defeated when I ran for governor the first time. There's no surprise that all of that political elite from South Carolina is up there saying that. They're right. I didn't have friends when I was at the State House because they were upset that I forced them to show their votes on the record and stop hiding behind voice votes. They're upset because I forced them to disclose their income so that taxpayers could see who was paying them. They're upset because I vetoed half a billion dollars of their pet projects that taxpayers had no business spending money on. I've never cared about being friends with the political elite. I care about making sure we serve the people. The same way Donald Trump has surrounded himself by South Carolina political elite and by congressional political elite. Congress doesn't want me to become president because they know I want term limits. They know I want mental competency tests for anyone over the age of 75. They know that I've said that if you don't get us a budget on time, you don't get paid. They know that I want them to stop investing in the stock market. I don't care what the political class wants. I've never asked for their endorsements. I don't need them. What I do care is what are we going to do to start focusing on normal, real people in this country and not the political elite. Donald Trump can have them all he wants, but that's why we didn't get things done in the four years that he was there. It's finally time that we have a fighter who understands what real American families are going through. Did you think it was inappropriate when the RNC chair, Ronna McDaniel, suggested that you need to drop out uh, because she didn't see a path for you? I absolutely think it was inappropriate. We've had two states that have voted. You need 1,215 delegates. Donald Trump has 32. I have 17. We still have 48 states and more territories to go before we get there. I'm not going anywhere, Jake. I am going to continue to go all the way through South Carolina. Then we're going to go on to Super Tuesday and we're going to keep on going forward. This is about the fact that we can't live in chaos anymore. This is about the fact that we've got to focus on what it's going to take to not just get our domestic policy on track, but what are we going to do to prevent wars and to make sure we keep Americans safe? We can't do that with the two guys there. Americans are telling people that. We need to start listening and make sure that we focus on what it takes to win a primary so that we can get our country back on track. So you're committed to staying, through, staying in the race through Super Tuesday no matter what happens in South Carolina? We're moving. I mean, what I'll tell you in South Carolina is we're going to close that gap. My goal is to be more competitive in South Carolina. It's always been to build on momentum. We started with 2% in Iowa. We ended with 20%. We went to New Hampshire. We got 43%. In South Carolina, we want to get even more competitive than that. And then we'll go into Michigan and we'll go into Super Tuesday. We have a country to save. I'm not going anywhere because I don't want my kids to live like this. I don't want anybody else's kids to live like this. We have been a, in total distraction for a long time, and we know that when America's distracted, the world is less safe. And all you have to do is look around the world and see that. I'm going to stay in this for the long haul because I think it's important, and I know that we need to get this done. All right, Ambassador Haley, uh, you've mentioned uh, war and the troubles around the world uh, a number of times during this interview. Coming up next, I, I got a lot of questions about how a President Haley might respond to fears of a widening war in the Middle East and much more. Stick around, uh, viewers, and, and Governor Haley will be right back.
And we're back with former U.N. ambassador, former South Carolina governor, uh, Nikki Haley, the only major Republican candidate still challenging Donald Trump for the Republican nomination for president. Uh, governor, uh, thanks for sticking around. Today, President Biden issued an executive order targeting violent Israeli settlers in the West Bank. Uh, the measure imposes sanctions on four individuals accused of leading riots against Palestinians, setting Palestinians' buildings on fire, assaulting civilians. The president saying that the violence, quote, has reached intolerable levels and constitutes a serious threat to the peace, security, and stability of the West Bank, Gaza, and Israel. You visited the West Bank as a U.N. ambassador. Uh, what do you think of this move by President Biden? I mean, okay, now do Hamas. I mean, it is unbelievable to me that Joe Biden is going to sit there and focus on Israelis. And he's not going to sit there and focus on what Iran is doing, what Hamas did to Israelis. Look, Israel is a democracy. They have a justice system. It's strong. They know what to do. Is Biden now going to say anyone who's convicted in Germany or France or Europe um, is now going to be allowed to have sanctions on them as well. What he's doing is not having the backs of Israel. He's falling all over himself to avoid any conflict with Iran. He's trying to appease Palestinians, but he's not acknowledging what it means to be a friend to Israel. I, it's, I, it's ludicrous. I don't even know what he's thinking at this point. CNN contributor uh, Barack Ravid reports that the State Department is looking at options for the possible U.S. and international recognition of a Palestinian state after the war against Hamas in Gaza. Would a President Haley theoretically recognize Palestinian statehood, uh, knowing how sensitive this issue is in the region right now? No, because it's not our place to say. It's Israel's place to say. To say. It's the Palestinians' place to say. And I'll tell you this, Jake, when I was at the United Nations, we worked a lot on Israeli-Palestinian relations. Israel always came to the table when it came to a two-state solution. The Palestinians said no every single time. And it's because they don't want a two-state solution. They want Israel, they want to eliminate Israel. They don't want Israel to exist. We need someone that's gonna go in with moral clarity. You have to know the difference between right and wrong. You have to know the difference between good and bad. You don't go now and try and appease the Palestinians and appease what happened on October 7th, because all you're doing is letting Iran know that we're scared. You're not letting them know that there's a price to pay when you do something to our friends. So it's, this is why Iran, you're gonna see them continue to get more aggressive. We're gonna continue to see more strikes because they're not worried about Joe Biden. And frankly, Jake, the one thing that keeps me up at night is what happens between now and election day. Well, let's talk about Iran, because after the Iranian-backed groups uh, attacked a U.S. military base in Jordan on Sunday, killing three U.S. soldiers, wounding dozens of others, uh, you said that the U.S. should go after the leaders of Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, the IRGC, or Iranian military leaders. Um, President Biden has said that a response is coming. Um, what do you think should happen? Are you calling for the U.S. to strike the IRGC inside Iran? Well, first, I'll tell you, if you look at this scenario, my husband is deployed right now. We expect America to have the backs of our men and women who sacrifice for us. The fact that Biden didn't do anything after the first strike, the fact that he didn't do anything after the second strike, the fact that it took 165 strikes, three soldiers to die, and two Navy SEALs, that's what had to happen for him to say, oh, we're going to come up with something? 
None of this would have happened if he wouldn't have fallen all over himself to get into the Iran deal. None of this would have happened if he wouldn't have lifted the sanctions, which allowed billions of dollars to flow from China importing oil from Iran. None of this would have happened if we wouldn't have had the debacle in Afghanistan. Now that we're dealing with this situation, what he should do is immediately put the sanctions back on. I can't understand why he's not doing that. He needs to enforce the sanctions on Iran and get those back on track. The second thing is take out those hubs where those drones and missiles are coming from that are in Iraq and Syria so that they can't harm our military men and women any more than they already have with these strikes. And then go after one or two of the IRGC members that are making the military decisions. Whether they're in Iran or whether they leave the country, you need to take them out. Iran doesn't care if you wipe out their fighters. They'll just get more fighters. They don't care if you wipe out their missiles and drones. They'll just get more. What they do care about is if you go after their money and if you go after their leadership. That's what we need to be doing. That's what will send a strong message. It's not about being hard on Iran. It's about being smart on Iran. Lastly, I, I want to turn to a rather odd subject. It's this preoccupation with conspiracy theories about Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey of the Kansas City Chiefs that MAGA world seems rather obsessed with, with this week. Um, Vivek uh, Ramaswamy tweeted, quote, I wonder who's going to win the Super Bowl next month, and I wonder if there's a major presidential endorsement coming from an artificially, culturally propped up couple this fall. Just some wild speculation over here. Let's see how it ages over the next eight months, unquote. Uh, Trump's attorney, Alina Haba, reposted a meme on her Instagram that says, who thinks this country needs a lot more women like Alina Haba and a lot less like Taylor Swift? The Trump campaign has actually commented on this and indulged this thing. Uh, what do you make of it? I don't. I mean, I, I don't. I'm, I'm not going to lie. I don't know what the obsession is. Taylor Swift is allowed to have a boyfriend. Taylor Swift is a good artist. Um, I've taken my daughter to Taylor Swift concerts before. Um, you know, to have a conspiracy theory of all of this is bizarre. Nobody knows who she's going to endorse. Um, but I can't believe that that's overtaken our national politics. I mean, right now you've got 60% of, of American families living paycheck to paycheck. We've got a border that's out of control. We've got wars happening around the world. The last thing I really think we need to be worried about is who Taylor Swift is dating and what conspiracy theory is going to have her endorsing a person for president. Former South Carolina governor, 2024 presidential candidate Nikki Haley, thanks so much. Have fun on the campaign trail. Thanks. Go to NikkiHaley.com and join us. While Governor Haley fights to win over Republican voters, President Biden is in a key battleground state right now that helped deliver him the presidency. His message to these crucial voters in a state Democrats are rather worried about. That's next. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Continuing with our politics lead, you just heard Republican presidential contender Nikki Haley, the last Republican standing between Donald Trump and the Republican presidential nomination. Let's bring in our panel. If Haley is hoping for a home state advantage in South Carolina, she did get some bad news today from a new Monmouth University, Washington Post poll, a majority, 58 percent of potential Republican primary voters currently backing Trump. Only 32 percent want to back their former governor. When I asked Governor Haley about it, she said she's going to make up as much ground as she can. She did not predict a win, but she said she's going to try to close that gap. Scott, can she close that gap or at least come close enough to justify continuing to run after uh, that South Carolina primary in three weeks? Well, it seems unlikely because the people that she's speaking to are unpersuadable. They've already made up their mind. If you look at the numbers on Trump, and I think this is even borne out in some of our own CNN polling, they're voting for Trump because they love Trump. They're not available to be persuaded by some of the things she's saying, which, by the way, she says things that are objectively true. She makes good arguments. You know, she has good strategic sense when it comes to how Republicans might best win the election in November. But the people she's saying it to have already made up their minds. And so I find it, I'm unpersuaded by her that she'll be able to close up the gap significantly uh, in her home state or, or, or anywhere beyond that. Uh, Karen, President Biden is in the critical battleground state of Michigan today to meet with union workers. It's a state he, he narrowly won in 2020, carrying it, less by th- carrying it by less than three percentage points. Yesterday, Trump was in D.C. meeting with the members of the Teamster Union. Uh, Trump carried Michigan in 2016 by a little more than 10,000 votes. Um, Biden really needs to win Michigan, uh, Karen, and it's not guaranteed that he will. It's a very good point. I mean, Michigan is a critically important state, and I think it's important that the president is there today. And obviously, it's one of the states, also in our reporting today, where you're seeing the campaign ramping up. There's also a lot of activity uh, in Michigan uh, in the sort of outside groups that have been doing work, particularly to try to rebuild or build um, relationships uh, with the Arab American community, where, as, as we've reported, there is a lot of pain around what is happening uh, in the Middle East. Uh, and so I suspect that will be part of what he talks about today, and it'll be part of what the campaign will have to continue to work on going forward. Yeah, Scott, I mean, uh, with the Biden executive order targeting extremist Israeli settlers in the West Bank, uh, and the idea that's been floated in a, in a few places, few media outlets, um, the idea of um, a two-state solution uh, being pushed again. I want you to take a listen to what Michigan Democratic Congresswoman Hillary Scolton said about Biden's visit to Michigan. We have large uh, Arab American population, a large Jewish population, the uh, you know, the lack of uh, peace in the Middle East. We're entering the fourth month, right, of, of the Israel-Hamas war uh, is felt in a deeply personal way in, in places like Michigan. I don't know that there is a single visit or a, a single 
word or phrase that the president is going to be able to say uh, to bring this coalition together. It's it's only going to come through a negotiated peace agreement. Well, Scott, I mean, if Democrats winning Michigan relies upon peace in the Middle East, that's kind of a high bar. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I, the, the other day, uh, folks were uh, going after Donald Trump for talking about his ability to negotiate various things. I mean, if you're waiting for Joe Biden to negotiate Middle East peace, it's going to be a while. Look, I, I think the reality for his his campaign is they are now making foreign policy, national security policy, and and certainly economic policy based on very narrow constituent interests, the people that are upset with him the most. And, and, and some of these people are never going to be on the same page. I mean, even the union endorsement he got from the UAW was immediately deflated when the head of the UAW went on TV and said, well, you know, to be clear, most of our members are going to vote for Donald Trump. They're not for Joe, Joe Biden. And so that that Gordian knot he's trying to unravel in Michigan uh, uh, looks pretty tough right now. But can we just, I'm sorry, Jake, I just have to push back for a moment because it's not just about, it's not just a narrow, I mean, as the Congresswoman talked about, there is a lot of pain being felt, frankly, across the country uh, about what's happening in the Middle East, particularly Arab American communities, Muslim communities, Jewish communities, and, and many of those of us who are watching the pain, feeling the pain. And so, um, you know, obviously, I agree. I don't think he's going to be able to get peace in the Middle East at the same time. Again, I think it's more what's more important is the outreach to these communities, having these tough conversations. I think that's critically important. And the other thing is, you know, I'll say, God willing, as a Christian, that we get to a place where perhaps there is some kind of settlement or, or peace being negotiated, that the United States can play a constructive role. I think that is good for him, both as the leader of the United States of America, and I think that would be good politically. Thanks to both of you. I really appreciate it. Coming up next, you've likely heard about deep fakes uh, and fake robocalls pretending to be someone else or, or pictures online that are clearly not real or maybe not so clearly not real. And now a political candidate targeted by these deep fakes as a warning for the United States of America ahead of our presidential election. Stay with us. In our tech lead today, damaging deep fakes created by artificial intelligence going viral in recent days, fake Biden robocalls to voters, fake explicit images of Taylor Swift. About two weeks ago, images of Donald Trump appeared to show red splotches on his right hand. These pictures, however, were real. That's actually red splotches on his hand or whatever it is. This is what Trump said when he was asked about it yesterday. You didn't see the photos coming out of Trump Tower? No. There was, okay. What was wrong with it? The other one. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Do you want to tell us what happened with the hand? Nothing. <laughs> Maybe it's AI. Trump suggesting the images were made by AI distorts reality. The problem is people could believe it because AI is running amok. CNN's Donnie O'Sullivan shows us now how deepfakes recently interfered in an election. Do you think this, does this sound like you? It does sound like me. It sounds like him, but it isn't him. This is Michael Szymedzka. He is the leader of the main opposition party here in Slovakia. And on the eve of this country's elections last year, he was the target of a deep fake. My party was, was advocating a, a strong pro-Western, pro-European uh, course to help itself fend off the Russian aggression. Just two days before voting began in that high-stakes election, this audio tape began circulating online. 
It purported to be a recording of a conversation in which Shemechka talks about stealing the election. So this didn't come out of the blue. It came against the backdrop of, uh, of a narrative that the elections were to be legitimate, to be rigged. His party, Progressive Slovakia, went on to lose the election by a few points. Do you think this could have changed the results of the election? No way of knowing. No. Um, we have stats that on Facebook alone it had, you know, 100,000 views, but it probably had some effect. Slovakia is a country of some five and a half million people, and it's bordered by Poland and Ukraine. So a lot of experts say Americans should be paying closer attention to what is happening here in Eastern Europe, as it could be a sign of what is to come in the United States. My warning is brace yourself for upcoming barrage of deep fakes. We'll be targeting presidential candidates in the US. Daniel Milo ran a government agency in Slovakia that countered disinformation. In my professional capacity, I do believe that this deepfake was part of a wider influence campaign by Russia to interfere into Slovak elections. On the same day the deepfake emerged, the Russian SVR Foreign Intelligence Agency published a press release that pushed a similar conspiracy theory that the US government and Shemechka were working to rig Slovakia's elections. The director of NATO Stratcom said the deepfake and that Russian statement simultaneously correspond to each other and promote the same false narrative. So you don't think the SVR's statement and the deepfake, the fact that they came out almost at the same time, you don't think that's a coincidence? No, I don't think that's a coincidence at all. It's much more likely explanation to me at least is that this is all part of a wider operation that was aimed to disrupt the outcome of the elections as such. One of the earliest posts of this deepfake came from a pro-Russian politician in Slovakia who also pushed election conspiracy theories on Russian TV. Some of the first people to share it on social media here seem to be pretty Russia-friendly politicians. They are. Um, they are Russia-friendly politicians. It can't be definitively proven that this has some Russian origin, but uh, of course, a loss for progressive Slovakia and a win for the other side would and does serve Russian interests, that's for sure. Kremlin officials did not reply to requests for comment. But even today, months after the elections here in Slovakia, there are still versions of that deepfake circulating on social media, including on Facebook. Facebook uh, reaction was very inconsistent and incoherent. In some cases, they just put a label that, you know, this is most likely disinformation. In other cases, they removed the audio recording, but yet in other cases, they left the video untouched. What's your message to Facebook? Well, guys, put your house in order. Asked about AI misinformation, Facebook's parent company told CNN, we label it and downrank it in feed so fewer people see it. But CNN found multiple instances where the company did not label this deepfake and their statement did not explain why. Regardless, once a deepfake spreads, the damage can be done. Even some of Shemechka's own supporters were confused. People who are educated follow politics they understand uh, what's at stake, but still were confused by the video. Really? Yeah. Wow. So people who are politically engaged, supporters of you. Absolutely. So I think this might be the year when we see a you know, deepfake boom in, in election campaigns all across the world. 
Now, we understand U.S. officials are grappling with how to guard against deepfakes. One senior uh, official told us about a process of contingency planning within the federal government for a foreign nation using AI to interfere in the U.S. presidential election. But the challenge is, Jake, AI technology enables anybody to cheaply create these sort of deepfakes so uh, people at home, political operatives, even pranksters, pranksters uh, could conceivably pull off attacks uh, like this just as easily as Russia, China or other nation states. Yep, absolutely. Paperclip this piece, Donnie O'Sullivan. Thanks so much for that report. (laughs) Coming up next, a teenager arrested after allegedly targeting high schools, mosques, and military bases across the country with bomb threats and so-called swatting incidents. How police finally were able to track him down. That's ahead. In our Law and Justice League today, at least seven people have been arrested, accused of attacking New York City police officers outside of a migrant shelter. And at least four of those arrested were being housed in New York City migrant shelters. This was all caught on video Saturday night. Officers trying to break up what they described as a disorderly group outside the shelter near Times Square. When the officers tried to take someone into custody, multiple people began beating the officers and then fleeing the scene, according to police CNN's John Miller's here. John, what more do we know about this incident and the suspects? Well, we know that police are uh, somewhat irked about this case in that assault on a police officer is a bail-eligible crime, even after the changes to New York's bail laws. And um, the district attorney's office didn't ask for bail for any of the suspects, and the judge didn't ask to remand any of them. So... Uh, They were released um, after being tracked down by police. Uh, What I've learned today from NYPD sources is that some of those in custody and some of those that they've identified and are still seeking, though they've only been here for about a year, already have extensive arrest records for robbery, larceny, um, strangulation, and other crimes. So The idea that bail wasn't even brought up or considered is something that is bothering police in this case as they continue to hunt for some of these suspects and try and track the ones that are already in custody and now released again. John, uh, we're following another story, this so-called serial swatter, uh, just 17 years old. He's been arrested after police say he made threats across the country. What exactly is is he being accused of? So he is being accused of being behind scores of swatting incidents. This is uh, an individual from Lancaster, California in L.A. County who was um, uh, a young man who was extradited to Florida where a lot of these swatting calls occurred. But he was allegedly prolific calling in targets around the country. These are churches. These are mosques. These are schools. Um, And this is part of this phenomenon we've seen over the last couple of years where these incredibly detailed calls where gunshots play in the background and people are screaming uh, that are meant to bring heavily armed teams of police responding quickly to somewhere. Jake, I think what happened today was remarkable. You uh, had the U.S. attorney in the Central District of Florida talk about this arrest Uh, which is being charged with local police because of the suspect's age, but 27 other people who were charged with making these threats to politicians, to judges, to friends, to strangers, to uh, houses of worship and other public places. This is something where the government is trying to show on the Internet it's the other way around. You can hide, but you can't run. Eventually, they're going to take what they found and trace it back to a name, no matter what you do to try and conceal that. And John, this has become an issue we're seeing across the country. Um, Do we know how federal and local officials 
are trying to work together to reduce these incidents? They're working very closely. If you look at this Florida instance today, that was the Pinellas Park Police, but also the Sarasota PD. It was the Hillsborough County. It was the Florida Department of Law Enforcement. It was the FBI, the U.S. Marshals, the U.S. Attorney. Each one of them have different resources and different responsibilities. And in some cases, the state charges may be stronger than the federal charges. But they know that they have multiple instances in multiple jurisdictions that tie to a very small number of people who were doing large numbers of them um, as, as individuals. So it was, uh, it was good teamwork that sets an example for those out there who think the anonymity of whatever screen name or ID they've set up is going to protect them forever. John Miller, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Coming up next, the mother of the Oxford, Michigan school shooter takes the stand in her own defense. Hear her explanation for why she and her husband went on the run after their son was um, arrested. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, President Biden in a must-win battleground state where Democrats are sounding the alarm that he's in trouble. It's Michigan, where he's speaking to the United Auto Workers in a fight for union votes just one day after Donald Trump was in D.C. meeting with the Teamsters Labor Union. Can Biden hold Michigan in November? We'll gauge his ground game with a U.S. senator traveling with him today. Plus, an apology from Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin. Hear why Secretary Austin says he wanted to keep his diagnosis private and even hid it from the White House and his boss, President Biden. And leading this hour, stunning testimony today from Jennifer Crumbly, the mother of the Oxford school shooter on the stand today. It's one of the first cases of its kind, a parent being prosecuted in connection to the murderous actions of her child. In her defense today, Jennifer Crumbly told the court her husband was responsible for storing guns in the house. She also said she did not believe the affair she was having with a firefighter interfered in how she was parenting. CNN's Gene Casares has followed every step of this trial. Uh, Gene, Jennifer Crumbly testifying that her son never asked her to get any help for his mental health issues. Well, here are the facts. The jury has seen texts that he sent to his little friend journal entries saying, I need mental help. I've asked my parents. They won't help me. There's no evidence the parents saw those texts or the journal entries. But she was asked that question. Here's how she responded. Did you ever believe that your son needed mental health treatment, therapy, counseling, anything? No. I mean, there's a couple of times where Ethan expressed anxiety over taking tests. Um, anxiety about what he was going to do after high school, whether it was college, uh, military. So he expressed those those concerns to me, um, but not not to a level where I felt he needed to go see a psychiatrist or a mental health professional right away, no. Now, this is interesting because once he was arrested, Ethan was given a psychiatrist, a psychologist, and he told them in sessions that he actually lied in those texts that he hadn't asked his parents for help. But that did not come before the jury because they are privileged 
medical records of Ethan Crumbly's, he did not waive that privilege. How did the mother describe the meeting with school officials that happened, as people might remember, the morning before the school shooting happened? Well, remember that morning, she had been sent a, a mass sheet where he had bullets and blood and my life is worthless and the world is dead. And he, she was asked to go to the school immediately. She texted her husband, emergency, we have to go to the school. So they went there and let her describe in this testimony what that meeting was like. It was pretty nonchalant. It was pretty brief. Um, he told us that he didn't feel um, my son was a risk and actually gave him the option um, if he wanted to stay at school or go home. My son wanted to stay at school. So we all discussed, we all discussed that. So that he did say he wanted mental health treatment for their child. And she said that he heard his testimony is she said, I got to get back to work, but would do it within 48 hours. But his testimony sort of reflected that he didn't want to pull him out of school. It was their decision. Ethan wanted to go back into class. And so he was given his backpack and he went back into class. And then a couple hours later, the backpack had the gun. And, and Jean, about that gun, what, did, did she testify how it was or was not locked away? Well, she said that she wasn't there when it was purchased the day after Thanksgiving, that she wasn't really into guns. She was more into horses. So her husband helped the gun and hid the gun. So she didn't really know where it was. Uh, we do know that on the day of the shooting, husband went home afterwards. There was the gun case open on their bed in the master bedroom and the gun was missing. And that's when he called police and he turned in his son. All right, Gene Casares, thank you so much. I uh, really appreciate it. Let's bring in now attorney and legal commentator, Ariva Martin. Ariva, what did you make of Jennifer Crumbly's testimony today? D did it help her or did it hurt her, do you think? Well, Jake, her attorney said in opening statement that she would take the witness stand and testify, and she did that today. She had a lot to explain because those text messages, many of the text messages that we now have learned about in this trial, many of them were very troubling, like the text message about him hallucinating and uh, believing that people were in his home, uh, and the text messages about him trying to seek or asking his parents for help with uh, some kind of mental health counselor and his mom laughing at him. So Jennifer spent the morning really trying to explain, one, how she either didn't know that her son needed mental health and, as it relates to that hallucinating, that they had a game that they played because this was a hundred-year-old house uh, and they often kidded around about there being ghosts in the home. So I think a lot of what she said helped her, but there still were big gaping holes. Obviously, prosecutors are going to try to pick apart her testimony. Was there any part of her testimony in particular that you think might be vulnerable to that? I think with respect to the time she spent with horses, one of the big issues in this case is that she was pretty much a negligent mom that didn't pay attention to her son and beyond negligent that she was grossly negligent, that her son was crying out for help. And rather than give him that help, she was spending time with her horses. And what we learned earlier was with a boyfriend that she was having an extramarital affair with. So I think the prosecutors are going to really go after her hard to try to establish that she was in fact ignoring her son who was lonely and who had some clear emotional health issues, but she was too busy uh, spending time at a stable and taking care of horses. Uh, and because of that, she didn't notice what was happening with her son. 
Obviously, this trial is being watched by individuals who, who want to hold parents accountable uh, when there is negligence uh, for crimes, especially mass shootings committed by their children. How, how important is this trial for that cause? This is a historic trial, Jake, because in this country, in our jurisprudence system, parents aren't normally held criminally responsible for the intentional acts of their children. So if there is a conviction of Jennifer or later her husband, uh, it is going to be a, a precedential setting case. Uh, and I think Folks want to hold a lot of people responsible for these mass shootings, not just parents, but also school districts, as well as gun manufacturers and others, because there is amongst uh, belief amongst many of us, there are too many guns in this society and kids have access to them in a way that is creating these very dangerous situations for schools. Ariva Martin, thanks so much. Let's bring in CNN contributor Stephen Gutowski. He is founder and editor of The Reload. Um, Stephen, good to see you. What do you make of Jennifer Crumbly on trial? Uh, just the, the fact itself that she's on trial for involuntary manslaughter because of the deadly mass shooting that her son committed. Yeah, it's, it's certainly a very novel case. I mean, I don't think we've ever seen anything quite like this where uh, a parent is on trial for murders that their, their child committed purely based on uh, not doing enough to intervene. Although the facts of this case are also very unique, especially that meeting they had the morning of the shooting and then the dire warnings that were, uh, you know, brought across during that. Yeah. Um, and not to mention the, the gun uh, and, and how he got it. Um, mm -hmm. do, you, do you think this trial will be a catalyst for other parents being held legally accountable for, for mass shootings committed by their children? It could be if there, if the circumstances are this severe, you know, where, where there was this much, uh, negligence. I mean, I, it's a, it's certainly a hard thing to hold a parent responsible for the deliberate act, criminal acts of their their children uh, in this way. Um, and, and you know, being irresponsible with how you store a gun is, is certainly something that's uh, very bad. And I think most responsible gun owners would be uh, outraged by the situation here, um, especially you know th this idea that. She didn't really have any responsibility. It was the husband's responsibility. It may not, but that might be a fairly common view, but it's not a very good one uh, when you have a gun in the home and you have children who can have access to it. But, uh, you know, I, I think commonly the, the view is that, you know, safe storage laws are, are trying to hold somebody responsible for horrible acts like this after the fact that a parent um, won't work necessarily. People who are responsible are going to be responsible. And uh, it's not clear that those who aren't already in that mind frame are going to be have their minds changed by something like this? Yeah. Obviously, uh, the NRA and other um, Second Amendment uh, lobbying organizations, um, gun rights organizations have been against uh, child safety locks and safe storage laws for years and years. Um, how are Second Amendment advocates viewing this case and might uh, advocacy for safe storage laws help the gun lobby in a way? You know, I think that the, generally you see opposition to laws about safe storage or laws about how you're specifically meant to, to store your guns, often because they require owners to uh, keep their firearms and ammunition separate. And obviously, if you're keeping a gun for a home defense, uh, that, that makes it much uh, or makes it harder to actually use the firearm in, in an emergency situation. And so you see people uh, often opposed for that idea. And, and obviously the, the earlier concept that these, 
you know, if you're not worried, if, if your child getting a hold of your gun and harming themselves or somebody else is not enough of an incentive for you to store your gun safely, it's not really clear that adding a misdemeanor charge or, or even in this case, a, you know, a serious charge after the fact is what's going to snap you into reality. Steve Gutowski, always good to have you on. Thank you, sir. Breaking this hour, a first-of-its-kind opioid settlement. It's not just drug makers the prosecutors went after. We'll tell you who else has agreed to a huge payoff, or payday, rather, for states. Plus, the apology today from the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, after failing to tell the White House for weeks he was battling prostate cancer. And another big interview here on The Lead. That's right, Elmo. I'm going to ask him that simple question that he asked so many of us online and so many people responded to. Stay with us. Breaking news this afternoon, two major settlements in the deadly deadly opioid crisis, including the first ever settlement against an advertising or marketing company, one that pushed claims, false claims, that the drug OxyContin was perfectly safe. Today, the New York Attorney General's office announced a $350 million settlement against marketing firm Publicis Health. Attorney General Letitia James saying, quote, for a decade, publicists helped opioid manufacturers like Purdue Pharma convince doctors to overprescribe opioids, directly fueling the opioid crisis and causing the devastation of communities nationwide. That settlement reached on behalf of all 50 states. And joining us now is Colorado Attorney General Phil Weiser. General Weiser, what's your reaction to this $350 million settlement from uh, publicists? I want to offer a few reactions. First, it was a important partnership with Colorado, New York, other states, and it's bipartisan. We've got every single state working together. We see a lot of dysfunction, polarization. This is about collaborative problem solving. Second, on the opioid crisis, let me put this in context. $50 billion has been brought by state AG action to states like Colorado. Colorado has over $750 million to deal with a crisis that so many people are suffering from. We've had more deaths the past two years from the opioid crisis than ever before. And finally, it's about accountability. Companies did things that at the time, they thought they were making money. Purdue Pharma being, of course, the most notable offender, they were telling people with Publis's help, OxyContin is safe. It wasn't safe. It was highly addictive. We have incredible work to do as a nation. This is part of that work. Today's settlement marks a shift by going after an advertising company for marketing opioids, not just the companies that manufactured and distributed opioids. Why is it significant? And why was this advertising firm particularly on the hook? Did they know what they were saying was a lie and could kill people? I want to put this into slight context. We also went after McKinsey for $600 million. They were obviously consulting with Purdue Pharma, developing the basic strategy. Publicis worked hand in glove with McKinsey, with Purdue Pharma. And the message that they got out, that OxyContin is totally safe, people can use it without fear of getting addiction, that was just wrong. And that caused massive harm to, at this point, generations. This started in the 1990s, is continuing through today. We need to make sure that anyone who is part of this steps up to the plate to help solve it. $350 million is Publis's contribution. That's a way to make some amends for the damage that happened. We appreciate them cooperating with us. We're going to make sure that money spent well in Colorado. I know other states will do the same. And quickly, if you could, sir, the other settlement today was $150 million with opioid manufacturer, I'm sure I'm going to mispronounce this too, Hikma Pharmaceuticals. What was their role in the crisis? Hikma 
produced opioids. They manufactured what we now know is an incredibly addictive drug, and they failed to monitor what was happening. This is not an uncommon story. I mentioned Purdue Pharma. Hikma is another manufacturer now being held accountable. They're smaller, but they contributed to this crisis by producing opioids and not monitoring what was happening in the marketplace. To go back to right. Purdue Pharma and McKinsey, they, they knew bad things were happening. They didn't act. That's the story with Hikma, too. All right. Really appreciate it. Colorado Attorney General Philip Weiser, thank you so much. And Publicis Health, in a statement today, says today's settlement, quote, recognize Publicis Health's good faith and responsible corporate citizenship is in no way an admission of wrongdoing or liability. We will, if need be, defend ourselves against any litigation that this agreement does not resolve, unquote. Ahead, the new executive order today from President Biden laying a marker on Israel's war against Hamas. Stay with us. Back with our world lead, President Biden just imposed new sanctions against four violent Israeli settlers in the West Bank. The U.S. State Department says one attacked Palestinians with stones and clubs, while another incited a riot and set Palestinians' buildings on fire. Though it's just four people in decades of conflict, the executive order marks one of Biden's most significant critiques of Israel since the horrific October 7th terrorist attack and the Israeli response in Gaza. CNN's Nick Robertson is tracking all of this from Tel Aviv for us. And Nick, remind us what has been happening in the West Bank as the major focus has remained uh, on Gaza. Yeah, if you look at October the 7th and mark that date, right after that, settler violence really ramped up, jumped threefold in the month of October. Now, the UN Group of Humanitarian Affairs, UNOCHA, that monitors this, they keep statistics and they say that settler violence since October the 7th um, has, until the middle of January at least, uh, resulted in 430 incidents of settler violence. One of those uh, resulted in a death. A number of them have resulted in uh, injuries to Palestinians, damage to property. Um, this has been the settlers in the West Bank trying to intimidate often Palestinians to leave and move out of their houses, part of a bigger campaign. And a lot of people would look at those four people uh, that President Biden has put on that executive order and say, look, although they were punished under the law here in Israel, they didn't really get strong sentences uh, commensurate with, with the activity that they were undertaking. I'm part of that because um, they feel that the government has a sort of a political blessing on it. Yeah, I mean, it's no surprise. Uh, we've covered on the show before anti-Arab racist bigot, the finance minister of Israel, Bezalel Smotrich, who helps to run the West Bank in the Netanyahu cabinet. He says the idea of violent Israeli settlers is a, quote, anti-Semitic lie spread by Israel's enemies. Obviously, that's not true. It isn't, uh, but he goes on to say and use the emotive language, uh, essentially, why is President Biden doing this to us right now while our blood is being spilled in Gaza and would point to, you know, some of the uh, settlers having... Uh, you know, some of their family members are hostages in Gaza right now. I, I think, you know, the, the prime minister has put it this way. He has said that, you know, we prosecute people who break the law here in the West Bank. But I think what this is, it's a very clear signal from the Biden administration that to Prime Minister Netanyahu, if you want to have a political future that involves the United States supporting you and your political future and views, um, then you're associating with the wrong sort of people in your government. Not clear if he'll read that message. 
Yeah, I mean, I think we've covered this before. Netanyahu has already made that choice between Bezalel Smotrich and President Biden. He is going with Smotrich. Nick Robertson in Israel, thank you so much. Meanwhile, at the Pentagon, an apology today from Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin. In his first press conference since his initially undisclosed weeks-long hospitalization, Secretary Austin said this about his prostate cancer diagnosis and why he kept it a secret. It was a gut punch. And frankly, my first instinct was to keep it private. I don't think it's news that I'm a pretty private guy. I never liked uh, burdening others with my problems. It's just not my way. But I've learned from this experience. But I want to be crystal clear. We did not handle this right. And I did not handle this right. Let's get right to CNN's Orrin Lieberman, who's at the Pentagon for us. And Orrin, uh, Secretary Austin also says he apologized directly to President Biden, who was also kept in the dark. He did. He said he normally keeps his conversations with his boss, President Joe Biden, private and secret for obvious security reasons. But in this case, he talked about that conversation and said he told Biden that he was deeply sorry for how this played out and for his decision to hide the diagnosis of prostate cancer instead of notifying Biden immediately. This is really the first chance we've had to see Austin over the course of the past month. He only returned to work at the Pentagon earlier this week. And this is video of him as he came into the Pentagon briefing room. The room itself was packed with reporters. And you can see there, he's moving fairly slowly with a very visible limp as he made his way towards the podium. Thank you, everyone. He then apologized and took full responsibility for this in his opening statement. He was repeatedly asked if there was any sort of order given by him or any of his staff members to try to keep this secret or hidden. He insisted there was no such order, not from him and not from any of his staff members to try to hide this or to fail to notify the administration, the president, the public, and the press. He was obviously also asked repeatedly about the drone attack on Sunday that killed three U.S. service members. He said those militias that carried out the attack have uh, capabilities. He said they have many capabilities. I have a lot more, he said. And now it's time, he says, to take away more of those capabilities than the U.S. has taken to this point. So he, he too, hinting at the U.S. response that everyone is expecting here. All right, Orrin Lieberman at the Pentagon for us. Thanks so much. Now, on to Gaza. You're looking at new videos shot in northwestern Gaza after Israel forces withdrew. The journalist who recorded this tells CNN that the entire neighborhood has been leveled. Despite that, people are attempting to return to what's left of their homes. In central Gaza, a six-year-old girl has been trapped in a car since Monday after she and her family came under Israeli fire, according to the Palestinian Red Crescent Society. CNN's Jamana Karachi reports now on her mother's desperation as her daughter runs out of time and a warning, some of this content you may find disturbing. A desperate call for help from six-year-old Hint, terrified, trapped in a car. Everyone around her is dead. Hind was in the car with her uncle, his wife, and their four children, trying to flee fighting from this part of northern Gaza. The horror in that car captured in this call for help from her cousin, recorded by the Palestine Red Crescent. Hello? Hello? 
Relatives on Monday morning received a call from the family saying they'd come under Israeli military fire. Rahad called me. She said, uncle, my dad, my mum, my sister and brother were killed. I'm bleeding. Help me. I'm dying. I told her, tie yourself with anything. At 4 p.m. she died. The only one left was the little girl, Hind. She said, please, I'm little, I'm injured, I peed myself. Hind stayed on the phone with the Red Crescent for hours. What time is it? She said, it's getting dark. I'm afraid of the dark. The area was too dangerous, hard to reach. They had to keep Hind on the phone as they scrambled to try and get a team to her. As a team was finally dispatched, a psychologist was now on the phone with Hind. But days later, they're still waiting. The Red Crescent lost all contact with Hind and its two volunteers who were dispatched to find her. CNN gave the Israeli military details about the incident, including coordinates provided by the Palestine Red Crescent. The IDF says, quote, we are unfamiliar with the incident described. We are extremely worried. We need to know what happened. Did they manage to save hand? Are they arrested? Did they survive? We need answers. No one more desperate for answers than Hin's distraught mother. If my daughter didn't die from the bullets, she is going to die from the cold, from the hunger. My daughter said, Mama, I am hungry. She said, Mama, I am thirsty. I'm cold. I call on the whole world to bring me back my daughter. I want anyone to call the army. We want our innocent little girl. Hind is too young to be going through this. She is too young. So many, so young, gone in this war. But one family holds on to the hope that it's not too late to save their little Hind. Jemana Karache, CNN, London. And our thanks to Jemana Karache for that report. President Biden is in Michigan right now, a state he flipped into 2020. How much his visit there right now could signal how much he is worried about this battleground state in 2024. I'm going to ask a senator traveling with him next. Turning to our politics lead, Republican presidential candidate, former Governor Nikki Haley, uh, told me earlier in the, show, in the show that she's staying in the race, quote, for the long haul. That seemed to be a, a way of signaling that she's staying at least through Super Tuesday. This comes despite a new poll showing her trailing Donald Trump by a two-to-one margin in her home state of South Carolina, which will hold its primary in three weeks. In the last hour here on The Lead, Haley pointed to CNN reporting that two of Trump's political action committees spent nearly $50 million on Trump's legal fees. It is unconscionable to me that a candidate would spend $50 million in legal fees. It explains why he's not doing many rallies. He doesn't have the money to do it. It explains why he doesn't want to get on a debate stage because he doesn't want to talk about why he's doing it. It explains why he had a temper tantrum, um, you know, the election night of New Hampshire is because he wants me out of the race and he wants to be the presumptive nominee so that all of that cash starts going to him and he doesn't have to spend anymore. CNN's Kylie Atwood covers the Haley campaign for us and joins us now from Hilton Head, South Carolina, where Haley has a campaign stop due uh, this evening. Um, what's the mood in the Haley camp, uh, um, Kylie, and, and how has turnout been on her campaign stops? 
Well, listen, these campaign stops have been full, Jake. I mean, a few hundred people at these respectful in terms of the number of folks coming out. But you also have to understand, you know, there's no other candidate who's campaigning in South Carolina right now. Trump isn't here, and she's the only one who is the alternative to him right now. So it's hard to compare it to anything else, frankly. When you talk to folks on her campaign, they're enthusiastic. They are uh, pretty determined. They recognize that the stakes are high for them here in South Carolina. But as she said to you earlier today, she is determined to close the gap in terms of those polls that show her trailing behind former President Trump pretty significantly. She's also determined to get in front of South Carolinians and remind them what she did when she was here as governor when it comes to immigration policies, when it comes to cutting taxes, uh, when it comes to helping folks get out of welfare programs. And so she's really trying to get out on the campaign trail as much as she can to remind them what she did here, as well as, of course, uh, still going and seeing those donors at a number of events in New York and Florida in recent days and, of course, headed next week to California and Florida. Also in South Carolina today, establishment Republicans who support Donald Trump held a news conference to to bash Governor Haley uh, over any number of issues, including uh, immigration. Take a listen. Donald Trump knows what the American people want. He's driving the Trump train of sensible immigration policy. Nikki Haley's and others have recently jumped on that train, but they're just passengers. Um, do you think the Trump train in South Carolina is kind of just running on cruise control right now? Jake, the last time Trump was even in the state of South Carolina for a campaign event was last November, late November, when he was here for the Clemson versus University of South Carolina game. I think that shows that they're definitely sort of riding the wave of support that they feel they have in the state. They have all those elected lawmakers here in South Carolina out on his behalf. They're bashing Haley so that he doesn't have to here in the state. But I also think it's important to look at that poll from the Washington Post this morning. 73% of respondents who are Trump supporters said they are extremely enthusiastic about voting in the primary. Only 45% of Haley supporters extremely enthusiastic. So Nikki Haley really has to make up uh, some ground there when it comes to getting to folks out to the polls later this month. All right, Kylie Atwood in Hilton Head, South Carolina with the Haley campaign. Thank you so much. Meanwhile, in Michigan, President Biden just attended a United Auto Workers event, fresh off a high-profile endorsement from the powerful union. The visit serves as a reminder of Biden's eroding support in Michigan among key Arab American and Muslim voters in that state uh, who are critical over his support of Israel in the Israel-Hamas war. Michigan has more than 200,000 Muslim American voters, 146,000 of whom turned out to vote in 2020, according to an analysis by M-Gage, an organization that seeks to build the political power of Muslim Americans. Remember, that state, Michigan, narrowly went to Donald Trump in 2016 by 1,000, uh, 1, I'm sorry, 155,000 votes. Uh, let's get right to Michigan Democrat Senator Debbie Stabenow, who was just with President Biden. And, and Senator, the president's visit comes on the heels of his announcement today that he's sanctioning uh, violent Israeli settlers in the West Bank. Now we also hear that there are senior uh, Biden administration officials yes. uh, talking about floating a, a two-state solution. Uh, <clears throat> but senior Biden administration officials are also heading to Michigan to, to shore up support. How worried are you about Biden's chances in Michigan come November, especially the eroding support again, among uh, Arab American and Muslim voters? 
Well, Jake, first of all, let me say broadly in terms of Michigan, this is certainly not the president's first visit. He's been here a lot. Um, people in Michigan know that we've got manufacturing jobs coming back home, coming here because of him and wages up and the middle class growing. That That's all very real. We're bringing down prescription drug costs, $35 a month insulin and so on that people are actually feeling. Uh, being with the president today, we stopped at a restaurant on the way into the regional uh, union hall and of course it was supposed to be 20 minutes, ended up being an hour because he takes selfies with everybody in the room. It, he was extremely well received. He met with black pastors and other black leaders and uh, extremely well received. But we have talked, we talked uh, coming in today, of course, about the, the horrible situation, the horrible loss of life that has happened. Uh, on the one side, Hamas, who was barbaric in their attacks. And at the other side, the thousands of innocent Palestinians who have lost their lives. And it's, it's a horrible situation. And I believe that he is laser focused more than anybody else on how we stop this loss of life, how we bring hostages home, how we hold people accountable, whether it's what's been happening in the West Bank, whether it's Hamas holding them accountable in the long run. Mm -hmm. And I believe that we're going to begin to see now the work yeah. that he has been doing in his team, trying to refocus on a two-state solution, get a coalition to be able to support in the long run Palestinians to be able to rebuild. I mean, the whole thing is, is horrible and it's been horrible loss of life. And the yeah. president understands that, he feels that. Um, and today, uh, earlier today, uh, a group of uh, Palestinian Americans uh, refused to meet uh, with Secretary of State uh, Antony Blinken to discuss uh, the situation in, in Gaza. Um, obviously, you, you, you hear the, from uh, the Arab American community, Muslim American community, that what they think the president's doing, even with the announcements you're talking about, it's not enough. Well, when you're losing family members, I mean, I understand this. When you're, you know, there's loss of life in your, your family, when you see what's happening, of course, uh, for anyone, uh, it's not going to feel enough. For the, for the families of the hostages, they don't feel that it's enough. And I understand all of that. I can tell you, as President of the United States, that he is laser focused in every way he can on being able to stop the loss of life and bring hostages home and, and hold people accountable. I will also say that in Michigan, that we see any way you turn, whether it's here in Detroit, and the Detroit roaring back and all of the, the rebuilding and the support efforts going on here on jobs, or whether it's any part of Michigan, you see that the handprint of what this president has done, rejecting trickle-down economics, and focusing mm -hmm. right on American jobs. That's why we were with Sean Fain and the UAW today, um, yeah. who are enthusiastically supportive of him because they understand, you know, it was Donald Trump who said, and I remember this because I was there in the middle of helping to lead the auto rescue, who said, let him go bankrupt. And it was President Obama at the time, President Biden, and now President Biden, Vice President Biden, and, and now President Biden, 
who moved forward and said, we need manufacturing in an auto industry and we need well-paid workers. And so it was Trump um, that said that or, or Mitt There's a Romney? big story to tell in Michigan. It's complicated. I'm sorry, say it again. It was Trump that said, let them go bankrupt or it was Mitt Romney that said, let them go bankrupt. No, no, Trump, Trump said them, you know, I, I don't know if Mitt said that too, but no, Trump back, back when we were okay. doing all of this, um, said they should. And then when they were organizing, he said that, you know, um, you should um, not give them higher wages. You should just make, you know, go to the South, move all your jobs to the South. He told the auto companies, move all the jobs okay. to the South, less wages, and then bring them back later. And the UAW will be begging them for jobs. I mean, we have a lot of, lot of things that, that he right. has said. Um, but I would just say it's complicated. Michigan's important. And I'm so glad he's here. All right. Good to see you, Senator Debbie Stabenow, Democrat from Michigan. Thank you so much. We'll be right back. In our health lead, the Sesame Street word of the day is trauma dump. Okay, that's two words. But Elmo learned all about trauma dumps on Monday after he asked a seemingly simple question on X, formerly known as Twitter. Elmo is just checking in. How is everybody doing? Turns out everybody is not okay. And by everybody, I mean seemingly everybody. Elmo was flooded with responses. One reply reads, Elmo, I'm depressed and broke. Another says, every morning I cannot wait to go back to sleep. Every Monday I cannot wait for Friday to come. Every single day and every single week for life. Elmo heard from companies including Oreo Cookies, which wrote, ran out of milk. Do the math. Elmo heard from the Detroit Free Press right after the Lions on Sunday blew that huge game, writing, quote, we've been better, Elmo. Look, Times are tough out there. Every single person is fighting their own battles, big and small. As for Elmo himself, the Muppet followed up with this post. Wow. Elmo is glad he asked. Elmo learned that it is important to ask a friend how they are doing. Elmo will check in again soon, friends. Elmo loves you. And the one and only Elmo joins us now, along with his friend, Samantha Malton, Executive Vice President and Chief Marketing and Brand Officer of Sesame Workshop. Elmo and Samantha, thank you both for venturing outside of Sesame Street to talk to us today. Elmo, it was very thoughtful of you to ask all of us how we're doing. So after all you've been through this week, let me begin by asking you both, how are you doing, Elmo? That's a very important thing to ask people. And monsters too. <laughs> well, Elmo's, Elmo's doing really well. You know, Elmo's glad that he was able to talk to a lot of his friends about how they're feeling. It has certainly been a whirlwind. Over 180 million people have seen Elmo's question, how are you? And we've been spending time developing resources and videos and activities that parents can do together with their children to help them understand how to talk about their emotions. Everything from belly breathing, Elmo, which you can teach our friends at home how to do, to sometimes more traumatic issues that they're dealing with. Elmo, were you surprised by all of the responses? And why do you think this simple question coming from you, Elmo, resonated with so many human beings and adults? You know, Elmo's not really sure. Elmo was surprised because Elmo didn't realize that when you ask someone how they're doing, 
you have to be ready because maybe someone's not doing well or maybe somebody is. But uh, it's an important question to ask, and um, I almost learned a lot about that. I think this just speaks to the special relationship that Elmo has with our friends, with our audience, and that really Sesame Street has, that so many have grown up with Sesame Street or are watching it today with their children. I'm one of those kids that grew up watching Sesame Street. I was born in 1969. I think that's when you guys were founded. And, and, uh, and uh, although Elmo, um, you hadn't yet moved to Sesame Street uh, yeah, when I, I was watching. But yeah, everyone knows well, that that's when Sesame Street was started to be around. Yeah. Well, Elma, when you're feeling down, what, what helps you uh, feel a little brighter? You know, one of the things that, that you were just talking about was belly breathing, which is re a really important strategy. That's a big word that Elma just learned. <laughs> a strategy, and it's belly breathing. So what you do is you put your hands on your belly, and you breathe in through your nose like this, and then you breathe out through your mouth. Slowly like this. And that really helps to make you feel calm and, and sort of get centered and relaxed. I feel better, I, do you? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's, I feel better just talking to Elmo. Elmo, yeah. um, <laughs> I understand you have a birthday coming up this Saturday. Happy birthday. How are you going to celebrate? Maybe a, a cookie cake with Cookie Monster if, if he would let you have any. You know, Cookie Monster does love cookies, but he's very good at sharing. Yes. Uh, yeah, he's invited. Everybody's invited. You can come, too, if you want to. It's on Saturday. Oh, that's so sweet. Okay? We've got a big birthday celebration planned for Elmo. We're very excited about it. And we're going to be releasing some new resources for people who really need them next week as well. So Elmo's going to help us do that. That sounds wonderful. Elmo and Samantha Malton, thank you so much. And please give my best to Ernie and Bert and Kermit, uh, and Grover, and Cookie Monster, and Big Bird, and Snuffleupagus, and The Count, and Guy Smiley, and, yeah. you know, the whole gang. Will do. Everybody says hello, especially Guy Smiley, and he would like a job at CNN. Okay. And Jake, we could just if we could just remind everyone to check out those important resources at sesame.org. You can learn about our emotional well-being, and you can learn about all the great work that Sesame is doing for communities and how you can help support that. And you can see Guy Smiley's resume on the website, too. <laughs> Sounds good, Elmo. Samantha, thanks to both of you. Bye. Have a good day. And we'll be right back. Breaking right now, sources tell CNN that Alan Weisselberg, the former chief financial officer of the Trump Organization, is in discussions to possibly plead guilty to a perjury charge. This is related to the New York civil fraud investigation into the real estate company finances, specifically testimony that Weisselberg gave in an interview with the New York Attorney General's office and at the fraud trial last year. We're going to have more on the story coming up next in the Situation Room with Wolf Blitzer. Until tomorrow, you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Threads, X, formerly known as Twitter, on the TikTok, at Jake Tapper. You can follow the show on X, at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of The Lead, you can listen to the show once you get your podcasts. Our coverage continues now with Alex Marquardt in Wolf Blitzer's Situation Room. See you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level.
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.